Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features bassoonist Monica Ellis of Imani Wins. We hope you enjoy. Je voudrais, chérie, te ma peine. Je voudrais, quand je près de moi, tu reviennes. Car vois-tu, rien n'a d'importance. Lovely and wonderful gentle folk, welcome back to the Soundweavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore, and my wonderful and lovely co-pilot today is the wonderful Blair Kernard. I am super excited to be talking with Omani today, I will tell you. So today we have Monica Ellis, who is the bassoonist with the Imani Winds. The Imani Winds are a wind quintet who have celebrated being music makers for over two decades at this point. They're Grammy nominated and they have just led a revolution and evolution of the wind quintet through their dynamic playing, adventurous programming, imaginative collaborations and outreach endeavors. There is just so much to talk about with this group. So I'm going to pass it on to Blair to start the questions today. So as a founding member, could you talk a little bit about how Money Wins got started and how you developed your mission? Uh, I would be happy to, but firstly, let me thank you all for having me. Thank you, Blair. We're old friends, as it were. (laughs) How we came together and how we founded our mission. So uh, we came together this this coming season, the 21-22 season will be our 25th season actually so goodness uh, that's quarter of a century (laughs) a quarter of a century it it's it feels surreal actually to think about that much time that has passed um but in 1997 is when we were formed Uh, the 97 98 year was our first season and our flutist valerie coleman our former flutist at the time uh she had this idea but it was her concept um, to put together an ensemble specifically of musicians of color who were instrumentalists for a wind quintet. Um, and so, you know, to find a black or Latina flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, French horn, of course, she's the flutist, but that was no small task, but she was up for it. She was absolutely up for it. And um, she knew our former clarinetist from Aspen Music Festival. Mm-hmm she didn't know anyone else so it's kind of like hey you want to start a group together and the two of them said yeah let's do it so what's next well we got to find a oboe player a bassoon player a French player um so it was a mutual friend that introduced her to Toyin our oboist um Toyin and I actually went to Oberlin together so we've known one another the longest from for all you know almost 30 years now um and uh she recommended me and then uh, we, the first horn player who even to this day is also a good friend, um, he was on the gig for just like six months and then realized we weren't really making any money. Uh, but he says, you know, I think I got somebody that might fit better for you guys. And so he introduced us to Jeff. Mm-hmm. 
So it was just this interesting serendipity that occurred in different ways that um, allowed for us to come together. And and I think pretty early on, we did recognize that the sound that we were creating together was something special. And as far as our, our mission goes, I think that did evolve as time went on. But but for sure, very early on, the fact that we just existed was the beginning of the mission. Mm-hmm. The fact that mm-hmm. it was uh, musicians of color, Black, Latina musicians coming together, having a very high standard for ourselves, um, wanting to just kind of show that we could do this. You know, as time went on, we we kind of massaged it, we cultivated it. We said, okay, let's refine it, I guess is the better word to say. We said, we're we're starting to get a name for ourselves. Let's represent composers that look like us. Let's think about the people that are actually coming to our concerts. Are they marginalized? Are they underrepresented? And by the way, these terms weren't even in our lexicon mm-hmm. back then either. But you know, now we kind of have them. But um, we we did think about these things. We had very early on a, a publicist that we wanted to bring on and say, help us to put people in these seats to see us that wouldn't normally come to classical music concerts. So. That type of purpose was what was going on in the beginning. And I guess the mission statement and the, you know, those more formalized things did come along later on, later on. But we just knew we wanted to play kind of, you know, rad music together <laughs> and and just be kind of badasses. That's really what we wanted to be I, at the end of the day. That's, that's what we wanted. To be. Yeah. But, you know, we played Valerie's music. We played spirituals. We played Paquito de Rivera's music very, very early on. So this kind of powerhouse music led us to sounding a certain way, which then led us to wanting to be a certain way, wanting to wanting to like like show what we could do. Talking about your records, uh, currently Imani has produced 13 albums, I think at uh, last count, which is pretty impressive. Some of which have received Grammy nominations and many have collaborators on them, including uh, Rene Marie, uh, what is your process from inception to final production with regards to making a record? Do you have a particular studio you use? And then is it an intensive weekend of got to get everything uh, done in a couple of takes or do you spread it out over a bit of time? That's a great question. We don't get that that more technical question often. So thank you for asking that, actually. So, uh, you know, you say 13, and I guess many of those are projects that we've been a part of, not mm. you know, strictly under the Imani Wins. So I think we have eight that are that are just strictly Imani Wins and others are that we um, are have just been blessed to to be kind of sidemen on. But for sure, it's 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 a part of the discography. And so um, with uh, of those eight, I guess six or so, five, something like that, were under the same label. And so we, we had a nice run with Koch International Classics and then um, that eventually turned into E1 where one or two at, at the end were with them. And so it was a, a beautiful relationship with them. And so they kind of said, let's, they kind of, you know, drove the ship for for a long time. And we just sort of said, okay, what, what should we do? So as far as location goes, it was up to, it was up to the producers, um, the engineers. It was up to all of up to the label to figure that stuff out. And 
the repertoire though, what was really so beautiful about it is that they kind of let us do what we wanted. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, what's, what are you working on? Or what are you, what are you dealing with? And let's figure out how this can be a record. Many of the records consisted of repertoire that was just a part of what our recital repertoire was. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily pieces that kind of would come together to form a real theme. Some of them were that though. Um, some of them, we did a Christmas record. So that was just clearly yes. all themed music. And we that's to this day, one of my favorite albums. Mm -hmm. We did, um, we recorded music from a huge project that we that we toured with for many years actually with Renee Marie um, mm -hmm. called uh, Josephine Baker, Life of Legends Hots. And it was this huge program about the life and times of the great Josephine Baker. And so that obviously had a theme to it. And so the label, yeah, they said, you know, we let's they, they figured out a few halls that were um, appropriate for us. In those early years, we primarily recorded in concert halls. So oh, nice. Recorded okay. at, um, up at Purchase, um, beautiful concert hall, Purchase, New York. Um, we recorded at the Academy of Arts and Letters. Um, so even when we had a rhythm section with us for certain certain pieces on the um, jo Josephine Baker and the Christmas record, for instance, we would kind of like just figure out ways to deaden the sound. And this, again, the early years, we, we didn't, we wanted th that sound of the hall combined with what really should have been in a studio. So we were trying to kind of, you know, do a hybrid. Um, so it was later on when we didn't have as much um, work with the label that we went into a studio, we, you know, decided upon where that would be and, and, and realized that um, that more dead sound was kind of what we wanted. With those logistics, what works for us, what has worked for us is just kind of doing things in a back to back to back sort of way. So we would just record, say, three days of <laughs> repertoire just right there. But we have been playing this stuff for months and weeks prior. Um, we kind of do it backwards. We would often um, kind of compare ourselves to the pop world. They, you know, make a record and then tour it. Right. They make the record in the studio and then go out on the road and tour it and play it and put it out there and then everybody knows it. Well, I kind of in the classical music world, we want to perfect it while we're on the road. We want to like work out the tweaks in front of a live audience in, you know, our own practice sessions and then record it. So it's a little bit of a of a um flip-flop way that the classical world thinks about it. And even for that matter, for that matter, the jazz world, I think, you know, they kind of want to like just get the music out there. And I should say that concept has been interesting to kind of thinking about things in that sort of pop music, uh, popular music concept. We've thought about that lately. We say, mm -hmm. you know, let's not be so precious about the music. Let's, let's, yeah. obviously it has to be good. It has to be prepared. It has to be polished, but at nothing's ever, we're going to find something wrong with it like later on and want to fix this and fix that. So let's not think we have to just tour it to death, get it to some unattainable level of perfection and then record it, mm -hmm. you know? So just that concept has been an interesting thing, but we've recorded just in the, you know, a chunk of three days or two days, um, kind of like a back-to-back -back thing. And we've, we definitely, talk about like how much time we are going to spend on any given piece because again in years past as as a uh, experience has shown us having a plan even if it's broken at least you had the plan to somewhat try to fit into um no plan at all makes it 
just you're just kind of flailing and 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 really just floundering a bit. So um, we we try to stick to a timing of sorts to say, okay, for every ten minutes of music, that takes about an hour of recording, mm-hmm. um, roughly. Now, speaking of Villa Lobos. That's one of the hardest pieces in the repertoire. So that oh, took a little yeah. bit longer than an hour to record, needless to say. Um, so as an example, but in a rough sense, um, that's how we would come up with a plan based on that particular formula. to commissioning composers talking of Valerie Coleman uh, your original flute player you have some composers in your ensemble that have written for the group what is it like to have in-house in ensemble composers and is this process any different from your external commissioned composers yeah um, I think from their point of view our composers point of view they absolutely loved it Um, they would call us the house band you know like they had just (laughs) a lab band so they could bring in sketches they could just you know hey let's talk about this little thing here and 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 while they're finishing a piece and so to have access as a composer to musicians right then and there i think was um a very very special thing for jeff and valerie both as composers for for all those years playing their music um like I said earlier, it was our, our sound was defined by their music, and oh just God, to have so the time with us was um, a really special thing for them as composers and for us too. I mean, it allowed for us to hone in on this sound and to not be afraid to be big and bold with with their music and just to even I call myself a bit of a backseat arranger, or maybe they call me that. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so for us as performers. Um, I think we were just particularly lucky because we had that ability to say to the composer right then and there, do you mind if I do this? Or do you mind if we do talk about that? Um, and so it was, a, it's, you know, just was a beautiful back and forth relationship between composer and performer. Of course, Jeff is now, um, he's, he has just recently left the group and so we have a brand new horn player. And so I, now we do not have any more composers in residence. By the way, for their music to be a part of the wind quintet lexicon in general now, just the almost standard repertoire is just such a beautiful byproduct of, of Imani wins. So it's it's been fantastic. Well, since you've referenced it, um, you did have a few personnel changes in the past few years. So what is your process for finding new individuals and what are you looking for in a potential colleague? Mm. Yes. So, right. We have had, we have had some changes, um, uh, as Toyin and I say now, and then there were two. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're the last two standing of the original members in all of the process and all, all of the auditions, all three of the auditions that we've had, 
we have chosen to make it kind of an invitation only type of thing. Mm -hmm. So that meant a lot of research on our part, a lot of digging in social media, frankly, it's when it kind of comes in handy to see um, just who's out there, a lot of asking around, uh, just getting recommendations from trusted teachers, trusted colleagues. Uh, when our first change happened, which was when Miriam Adam, our clarinetist left, we had to have a very kind of um, soul searching conversation with ourselves because we thought, well, you know, our identity as musicians of color is very important to us. Are we going to maintain that? Are have have we come to the point that was 17 years ago, um, between 17 and 18, it was mid-season. Have we come to the point where it's not as important? Or if it is still important, of course it's important, but you know, should we consider other other people? So we had those conversations amongst ourselves um, and actually continued to have that conversation uh, about the racial makeup of the ensemble, even when we had other uh, personnel changes. So um, we said, well, you know what? We will keep an open mind. We will allow for people that kind of come to us through that research process. We'll just see what happens kind of a thing. That's the mm -hmm. determination we said. And, and we said, guess what? This is our group. We can make the rules. And we invited them to come in and to submit, I should say, submit recordings based on that repertoire and also mm -hmm. submit uh, answers to some questions. We wanted to see their personalities. And this kind of leads to the, to the matching. We spend a lot of time not on stage. <laughs> yep. We spent a lot of time, you know, the, that hour and 45 minutes on stage is the culmination of many, 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 many hours of just obviously rehearsal, but talking to each other in a minivan. We laugh a lot, eat a lot, we drink a lot. Like, like we have to have just that type of, of um, familiar relationship to have the concert stage be as good as it is and as good as it can be. Um, it's kind of all a um, ramp up to that performance to tell you the truth. So it's important. That was very important. That was a big part of, of the audition process to see what kind of personalities we were having. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the questions that we asked were really important. Uh, just how do you feel about touring? Um, what do you think you can bring to the ensemble that's different from, that's separate from your musical mm -hmm. aspect? So anyway, yeah, that, th those questions and, and obviously their playing um, was, was, is paramount. Um, it was a part of that early process. And so when we heard Mark Dover, who is our clarinetist play, we said, well, there's no denying this person at all, yeah. regardless of him not being a person of color. So, you know, with the other two similar circumstances with um, researching, auditioning, a first round having, a, a, you know, a recorded first round, a live second round. And during the, um, during the, the live round, we go out to lunch or dinner and that's when we kind of get to know people. And hey, you don't know somebody like after one dinner, mm -hmm. like that's, that's not gonna happen, but you just kind of keep your fingers crossed and hope that they're as cool as they are <laughs> in that moment. And thank goodness we've been really, really lucky. And, and uh, all of them have been just tremendous assets and additions to Imani Wins. And I gotta say, in a lot of ways, I feel like we're just getting started. There's so much about the makeup mm -hmm. of, of who we are now and the things that we're doing now that mm -hmm. is just the continuation, but also 
a new beginning in a lot of ways. And so it's very exciting. Even, even us, me and Toy and us old ladies still in the group. <laughs> in 2016, you received a permanent presence in the classical music section of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington, DC. That was a lot to say in one sentence. What was the process for being identified and permanently curated in a museum? And what were some of your own personal reactions to what is a pretty unique honor? Yeah, um, again, a great question. Thank you for asking that. The, the process, you know, the process actually was very casual for, for lack of a better word. It, it was um, not super formal and I didn't even recognize the magnitude of it until it was kind of there. I, I have mm -hmm. to say, I was I was even sort of I was kind of ignorant to um, how big of a deal this was at the beginning um, of just the ask. And so this is where an incredible collaboration and friendship is is so important. Uh, our dear friend Jason Moran was part of the choosing process of who would be a part of the the museum. Really, it's like one day I get this email to tell you the truth. <laughs> I just get an email that says, um, you know, we're interested in having you be a part of, of the classical music collection. Uh, would you mind clearing this particular music, these record, these, these clips of, of videos? And, um, you know, they were very formal about it. So casual in the sense of it was just kind of an email mm -hmm. and I didn't get some presentation, um, but they were formal in the sense of, you know, making sure that the permission was there. And, um, you know, I said, yes, of course, it would be wonderful. And like later on, I'm like, y'all, we're in the Dagon yeah. Museum. You know, like, <laughs> this is for real. This is- You're in the Smithsonian. That's the Smithsonian. Yes, yes. <laughs> it, it took, I guess, the entire process of it being open and you know the opening of it and just you know the grandeur that that held for it to really hit home for me and and i you know i'll, I'll accept my own ignorance and i think many people as african americans may not have realized the the gravity of this institution until it was right there looking at us you know yeah. of course if you were in it you were in the preparations you know Lonnie Bunch is the as the curator of of the entire process um and it you know being in the in the minds of so many people for decades of course that was there but the building is here the the ribbon is cut you can go see this you can go hear it you can go experience it that's when it's real you know that's when it for the for the common person when I was able to do that, it was actually Jeff and I went together when we were in DC um, at a concert we were doing in at the Kennedy Center. And um, yeah, and there we are, like in between Jesse Norman and Kathleen Battle, you know, and just, it just right, like we're on a, it's on a roll, you know, on a, on a, a constant roll. And it's like they happen and then us and then, you know, something else happens. And so it's just, an absolute incredible honor, um, you know, just to say that that is a part of who we are is, is more than humbling.
So in 2010, uh, you started the Imani Winds Chamber Music Festival, which uh, was located in New York City. And I attended the program like one or two years after it started. And I distinctly remember quite a few things. Um, and I'm, I wanted to dive into a little bit. A few things that I stood out to me was that we had like master classes and lectures around entrepreneurial skills and career skills where you brought Angela Beeching that year. Um, and also that you had asked all the groups. So we're put together in a group to create an educational program based around our repertoire that we were preparing on a theme, which was the Olympics that year. And then whoever won the quote unquote like competition or presentation then got to go out and perform and that year was a hospital. So I'm kind of curious about how that all came together and why you thought all these skills and um, interesting aspects of musicians performing um, was important. And if this is still something that happens to this day. Woo, yes, yes, you were you were in those early years where we, we um... And, and in many ways, the model is, is the exact same way. Um, we've tweaked and refined, again, just over the years, recognized ways that we can do that better, do it better. Uh, but again, Valerie Coleman, man, she, she's just, again, just the, the visionary behind so many things that have defined Imani Wins. She said, how about we replicate what we do on the road, which is masterclasses, mm -hmm. entrepreneurial talks, mentorships. How about if we did that here in New York City, where we're from, where we live, uh, and create it as this summer festival, and not only for it to be a service to young professionals, young students like you were, Blair, but to also let us stay home. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very practical reason. And, you know, again, she had that visionary. She said, let's Let's try to stay home a little bit, make money here, mm -hmm. you know, and then also just have this in this this incredible event occur. So that was the primary impetus of it. Those ideas of just preparing budding professionals in the music business was and is very important to us. Um, we did that in 2010, as you said, and so we had been now doing this for for some years already. We recognized the importance of giving back and, and kind of paying it forward to younger musicians that are coming along. Um, we just saw that, that, that people were hungry to have a festival that wasn't about an orchestra, that wasn't about, yeah. you know, just uh, the solo world. But the idea of a chamber music festival, I don't think was, was, was something that was really around so much. And um, the empowerment of that is something that even to this day, I'm always just kind of mesmerized of that the students that leave it very much like yourself, Blair, go on to just be these incredible empowering musicians that realize you don't have to wait for things to happen, that yeah. you can kind of take the bull by the horns, create things on your own, um, mm -hmm. you know, be become your own chamber music group, become your own uh, entrepreneur. So we did feel like it was important early on to show the breadth of the music business to show that not only should you be uh, absolutely excellent as you can be as much as you can at your instrument, but let's think about these other sides. Let's think about the mm -hmm. business part of, of the, the business aspect of the music industry. Let's think about education. Let's realize that 
you know, you are going to be a teacher, whether you want to be or not, mm -hmm. um, in one way or another. And so let's <laughs> cultivate those skills, you know. Um, and so we try to do it in a fun way, in an interactive way. Um, and so it's absolutely still around. Yes, the festival has proven to be a really important aspect of Imani Wins. Um, it's it's shown us that not only can we create something on our own that is that has a model of being longstanding, but the people that are in it will go on to just to just get so much out of it, and we think um, revert back to their experiences there, and that informs the decisions that they make later on. Um, you mentioned Angela Beeching; she's been. Uh, a presence for many years, just kind of always there and dear friend of ours and just such an important person in the entrepreneurial world of music. And so, you know, having her there kind of as a direct access, just as an example, um, I think has been wonderful where I'm so proud of the, um, uh, it's called the Emerging Composers Program, ECP. Again, something Valerie came up with. That has been a great chance for composers to get music played. Yeah. I, you know, again, having that lab um, group to play their music. So something that does not often happen, but, you know, that one, that aspect of the program is really special to me. And I, and I know to so many composers as well. So yes, it's a, it's, it's a beautiful thing, big part of our whole platform and something that we're really proud of. As of this summer, Imani Wins announced that they were added to the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia as faculty. With us returning, quote unquote, back to pers uh, back to in person and normalcy and reconnecting again, what are you most looking forward to at teaching at this fabled institution? Woo! Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's Curtis. That's <laughs> like what you know. I mean, it was a pinch me moment to get the call of the idea of this to just to to even be invited to talk about this as a possibility. Um, and uh, so eternally grateful for, to Paul Bryan, to uh, President Diaz, Roberto Diaz of Curtis, that, um, that they think as much to expand the concept of this incredible 100 year old institution to invite a group like us to be a part of the faculty. So, you know, I have to just start there, for, first of all, because um, that type of leadership, I think, is um, is really important. Now, of course, has Curtis gone through some serious issues in the last in the last couple of years? Absolutely. Do they still have some learning to do and some wrongs to right? Yes, they do. do. Do many organizations mm -hmm. in our classical music world have those challenges? Yes. So I, I, I would be remiss if I did not just mention that. And it's not all, you know, just roses and, and, and butterflies. Just in the, in the realm of diversity, in the realm of recognizing a culture so ingrained can shift and be malleable and um, can have an opportunity for growth and evolution. For them to recognize that, I think is a big deal. It's been a great pleasure to start to have these conversations and to see how we will integrate ourselves into the fabric of the of the organization of the of the school we will be coaching we will be mentoring we'll be starting um kind of a studio class for the chamber music 
department, the WIN, Chamber Music Department, hoping to absolutely make some very meaningful connections uh, with those students. That's the beginning. We've got lots of ideas. We'll, we'll kind of get our feet wet a little bit with just these um, coachings and, and then hope to integrate more into the career services department, open things up uh, in the community of Philadelphia, um, recognizing community partners like Play on Philly. There's lots of ways that we can be active, but first and foremost, it's the students right there that, um, that we are looking forward to connecting to. Yeah, yeah, it's a distinct honor. So once again, a huge thank you to Monica Ellis of the Imani Wins Quintet for joining us for such an enlightening chat today. This was really wonderful to speak with you. Now, all of the notes and information about Monica and the Imani Wind Quintet will be down in the show notes, and we look forward to hearing from you all soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers Podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast, and on Twitter at SWChamberCast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Josephine Baker, Astor Piazzolla, and Paquito de Rivera, and performed by Imani Wentz. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.